Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you couldn't fully be yourself? Maybe you hesitated to share an idea, express an opinion, never mind present an opposing view. Or maybe you felt like you didn't belong. And as a leader, have you ever been made aware of an employee having this experience at work? I have Parsha Marlowe joining me to discuss the profound importance of psychological safety and belonging. Parsha Marlowe, whose pronouns are she, they, has 30 years of experience as a marriage and family therapist and neurodiversity coach. She specializes in the intersection of neurodiversity, disability, and LGBTQIA+. Pasha speaks to organizations and ERGs about neurodiversity-affirming practices, psychological safety, and neurobelonging. She encourages leaders to have a lens of inclusion and intersectionality to allow all, including those with the most marginalized identities, to be seen and heard. In this episode, Pasha and I discuss how Pasha got into such a specialized field of work, how as leaders we can create environments for psychological safety to exist, shaping our words and actions to contribute to psychological safety, continuing your own development to sharpen your lens of inclusion and intersectionality, and the work Pasha is doing for organizations. If you are new to the Women Taking the Lead podcast, hello and welcome. I am Jody Flynn, and my pronouns are she, her. I am the CEO and founder of Women Taking the Lead, a leadership development company that helps leaders to achieve their gender parity goals at all levels of leadership and in all divisions of an organization. We help to realize these results through consulting, coaching, leadership development programs, and keynotes. My goal is for this podcast to be a valuable resource for you and others in your organization of all genders to grow in your leadership. If we are not already connected on LinkedIn, please send me an invitation to connect. You can find me directly at linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Jody Flynn, or you can search on the platform for Jody Flynn. I am very active on LinkedIn, so I should be at or near the top of your search results. Be sure to add a note to the invitation, letting me know you're a listener of the podcast, and I would love to connect with you and get to know you better. Now, let's bring in Pasha. Pasha, welcome to the Women Taking the Lead podcast. Thank you so much, Jody. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. I'm excited for this conversation because we, we've we kind of been dancing around doing this for a while. And we talked a couple of weeks ago and it was like, you know, it was like full steam ahead. We are, we are ready for this. Let's have this conversation. But before we get into sort of the meat and potatoes of what we're here to talk about, everyone's heard your professional bio, but, you know, we also want to know the woman. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about what you have going on in your personal life and and what you're up to. Thank you. I am a a mama bear before most anything. I'm a mom of three, 27, 25, and 16 year olds. So I've been actively parenting for 27 years. So I I can't separate myself from from that. And it's the favorite part of my life. So I'll start there. Uh, in terms of hobbies and interests outside of work, and truth be told, work is one of my greatest pleasures and, and adventures at the moment. It challenges me, so I love it. I have taken up stand-up comedy, uh, writing, producing, watching, and that has been really great for my brain. It's it's a mindful path to pleasure and joy and laughter, which doesn't come easy to me. Yeah. Okay. I I love this because I've been following you for a while. So I've seen a little bit of this journey. And when you say your work is your passion and your joy, I, I can let everyone know she's not just saying that to say that. I know a lot of people say that as like a validation of like, it's okay that I spend so much time thinking and, and immersed in my work because I do love it. 
you really do love it. So let's start there. How did you get into, because the intersectionality of the things you're up to, you speak on, the message you spread is very specialized. How did you get here? Thank you. It's funny. It's specialized and common in the sense that mm-hmm. now that I've been in this work, so I, because I was a therapist for 30 years and then I started leaning into neurodiversity uh, really mostly over the last five to seven years, the intersection of neurodiversity and disability is there because dis- the non-apparent disabilities, disabilities, including, you know, d- cognitive differences, but also mental health issues, uh, disabilities we can't see. Mm-hmm. That Those two are just intrinsically intertwined. But the correlation between neurodivergence and, and LGBTQ or queerness, uh, really at about 2020, I noticed inside myself and inside almost all of my clients that there's this uh, simultaneous coming out in many ways, coming out neurodivergent, coming out queer, coming out uh, menopausal, coming out angry, coming out uh, an activist, coming out uh, just in, in so many ways, challenging norms, questioning norms. There's almost this reckoning and a fierce unraveling of norms. And when you unravel one norm, no doubt another will be unraveled right after it. So the intersection and the correlation is, they say the Venn diagram is a circle, like, especially with younger generations. If you talk to someone who is neurodivergent, I will guess that they will they are likely also identifying somewhere along the LGBTQIA plus spectrum in the sense of if anything fluidity and not fully straight, not fully anything. There is mm-hmm. more fluid. Gen Z and Gen Alpha like come out more fluid. They just do. And they do reject the binaries, don't yeah. they? They they do not like the extremes of the spectrum. <laughs> yes, agreed. And so so I I think I think the the three all make sense together, but I understand that it looks quite niche. <laughs> yes, and I should say it's not that that those generations don't like the extremes of the spectrum, but they don't like to be pigeonholed as having to be one or the other. That that was more what I was thinking. And it's interesting you say it happened during the pandemic because I'm I'm just kind of speaking out loud where my brain went was like, yeah, as we were kind of restricted physically, yes, in terms of like our voice and our self-expression, like people were looking for outlets. Like you can tell me I have to stay in my home, but you don't you can't tell me I have to stay in my head. Exactly. <laughs> and we started uh exploring other avenues of learning or playing or creating. And for some of us, that ended up being for the first time ever having the time to listen to podcasts, to read books, to research. It was it was a gift in the time of quarantine to actually read more than the first third of my books. This is coming from my ADHD brain. I don't often finish them. I start them, but I don't finish them. And I started finishing. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I see myself in these books. And during the pandemic, of course, remote work. So people's systems and structures were gone and started to kind of reflect their differences. Uh, And children were being remote schooled and homeschooled. And then their learning differences, cognitive differences, intellectual differences, mental health issues were in the spotlight. And often for neurodivergent adults, they realize they're neurodivergent after their children are diagnosed through school. I've seen that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Their child gets diagnosed and all of a sudden they or their partner are like, wait a second, maybe we should also expand the testing too. Yeah. Plus there's a genetic component to a lot of neurodivergence, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if your child is ADHD, there's like a 50% chance and, and uh, (laughs) there's, and and that, that might even grow more uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of the research that's coming out. I've heard anything from 50 to 80% depending. And so, and if you and your partner are, let's say ADHD 
or autistic, it's just very likely that your child will be as well. And so just knowing that, and then you start really unraveling and outing your entire family tree, like, oh, that's why my family is the way they are. And uh, that's a fun process uh, when when people first recognize or self-discover or get diagnosed formally. I'm very much honor lived experience and self-discovery because formal diagnoses is inaccessible. It's not affordable. It's years of waiting. It's not always accurate. So I know that's a controversial statement to say that I honor lived experience because people are worried that so many people are coming out. Oh, everyone's ADHD now. Everyone's autistic now. Uh, Is that going to leave not enough resources or medication for the people who really need it? And um, I, I don't think more people are are ADHD and autistic. I think we've always been here. Speaking of those ter- two neurotypes uh, specifically, right now, it's just that there's less stigma and there's more research, specifically around girls and women. Because mm-hmm. only in the last five years did we even realize that girls and women present far differently than boys, and the stereotypical idea of what for example, ADHD or autism looks like. But I before I end this thought, neurodivergence includes far more than ADHD and autism. It includes mm-hmm. Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, traumatic brain injury, mental health struggles. It's anything that diverges from society's idea of what is the normal or right way to think or act or move. And if that's the case, I think more of us are <laughs> neurodivergent than right. neurotypical. Um, but it's misunderstood what what that term is. Even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so case it, you know, underscoring your point, like this is just the state of the world right now. In the last four years, there was this boom of discovery, yeah. right? And people had more time to get curious think about these things, question, read, research, all of the, that good stuff. And then, of course, we can't pretend to be one way in our personal life and show up at work differently. We might try to hide these things at work, right? But more and more people are demanding, especially with the younger generations, that I show I am accepted at work for who I am. And if I am not, I will go elsewhere. I will find something else. And so now there is this question of, because, you know, and talent is, you know, ongoing, like the big need in organizations. How do we get talent? How do we keep the talent that we have? You Mm -hmm. know, there's, you know, you don't want this like um, wheel of like people coming in, people coming out, you know, and if people are leaving, it's for a reason. So I know top of mind for a lot of leaders, though they don't always have the answers is how as leaders can we create, can we create environments for psychological safety to exist? So people feel comfortable just being themselves at work. Absolutely. And I think what you're talking about is the number one problem because you can hire but if you don't support, you're not going to retain. And uh, and neurodivergent talent or any talent, obviously, if you don't mm-hmm. support your employees. But with with neurodivergent uh, talent, half of neurodivergent people are leaving their jobs or planning to leave their jobs because there's this sense of inclusion in writing in a performative way. There's even talk about neurodiversity hiring programs where 30 to 40% of Fortune 500 companies are jumping on this because they see the benefit of a neurodiverse uh, workforce. So they have these neurodiversity hiring programs. One, they don't know what that means because what they really want is autistic workers. And I can go into the misunderstanding there and potentially the um, taking advantage of autistic minds in that sense. But if you say a neurodiversity hiring program and you're not opening up to all minds, all bodies, all brains, then it's not a neurodiversity hiring program. You're, you're It's an auti- autistic hiring program. It's very so selective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if it's not stated as such, if I were to 
uh, you know, join such and such company under the neurodiversity hiring program, figuring, well, I'm neurodivergent. Let's say I wasn't autistic. I would feel completely excluded and, uh, and dis misunderstood and disregarded immediately. So I, I would leave because it would be under false uh, pretenses. So I think people need to be really accurate uh, with with the language that they use around inclusion. And as to your point about psychological safety, yes, like that's part of the support. And I always say that psychological safety doesn't exist in an organization unless the most vulnerable the most underrepresented, the most marginalized people in the organization are able to speak their mind, talk about their mistakes, bring their feelings and opinions to the table. Because unless the most marginalized or vulnerable or underrepresented people can't, then it's not a psychologically safe environment. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing first and foremost is like as leaders, just the ability to listen and right and have the EQ, right? If somebody is expressing themselves in a way that would not be considered the standard or the normal way, you know, someone might express themselves is also having the EQ to recognize like this is part of how this person expresses themselves with boundaries, yeah. Right. Because I think that's where people go is like, but then the extreme, we're not talking about somebody screaming at you or swearing at you, that sort of thing. So let's talk about like, what could, what might this look like for a leader? Well, let's say ADHD, you know, it might look like very circular thinking, maybe giving too many details. I say too many, like in quotes in my head, because somebody else is saying too many, talking too long get to the point. Mm. Where are you going with this? Why are you talking about your uncle? We're talking about this spreadsheet. You know, there's a little bit of deep, that's a, that's a, a common way that an ADHD person will think in very circular uh, fashion and, and details to add uh, understanding and to bring understanding, not to purposely mindfully, uh, you know, go off on a tangent. It's, there's always, there's a verbal processing that happens where for some people, they don't know what they want to say until they're saying it. They don't mm -hmm. even understand what they think until they're saying it. And mm -hmm. so this verbal processing to a manager might look somebody like somebody's just going on and on and on. So I would suggest a bit more patience because the, the point will come and the ideas are there. Some people just need a little bit more space to to process. Yeah. And yeah. So that's one thing. Um, and I can think before we go on, I, I could see in your expression, like I have another example and I'm even thinking in this case, um, that as a manager, right, you might be sometimes just off the cuff, you know, quick meetings, that sort of thing. You might, you might get this, but if your team member is going to be leading a presentation and you know, their ADHD and they need this time to speak out loud and think their thoughts, well, then you definitely want this person to do a run through with some people mm -hmm. as well so that they get clear and they're ready to go. Like at the time of the presentation, you don't leave it to the last minute. Yes, you're right. In an important presentation, it would be good to have some planning, some prep work. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and the flip side of that is typically ADHDers can think very well on their feet. They're great at improvisation and spontaneity and their intuition is, is good. So they do thrive in that. So you don't want to structure it and script it so much that they feel, frankly, bored by it. They'll shut down. And so because they want some of that almost that um, urgency and novelty to energize them enough to, to be present. Does that right. make sense? So not too scripted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do well with an exact script uh, because it doesn't allow for me to bring in whatever energy I'm reading from the room or for mm -hmm. myself in that moment. Uh, but, but an outline is helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is the path we're going to go. Yeah. Right. But the, it might like look different today than it would tomorrow. That sort of thing. Yes. What else can leaders do? Cause there there's listening and also understanding what your team member needs to bring their best forward. Yes. Are there other things that, that leaders can do to help create that environment for that people would feel comfortable in and like they belong? 
Yeah, yeah. I have so many uh, examples. So I'm going to try to just pick like the, the, the top ones. One, I would say for many neurotypes, including ADHD and autism and, and, and from a trauma informed place too, often it's the, the stimulation that dysregulates or um, breaks focus. So for instance, if I'm in a room where there's a leaf blower outside or a siren outside, uh, you know, a fire engine passing, or it's very hot in the room or cold. Uh, if there's something where the stimulus is, is um, bothering me and dysregulating me, I'm going to have a hard time thinking and focusing and concentrating. So if somebody says, you know, it's, it's hot in here, can we open the window? It might sound like a, you know, request that is not all that necessary, but it might be the thing that keeps somebody able to, to think and process and present or whatever it is you need them to do because the sensory overload comes really fast. It's like getting into, I always describe it to people who don't have sensory uh, overwhelm that leads to sometimes we call it meltdown. It's just like, it's overwhelming, like a hot mm -hmm. flash or like when you get into a car, a hot car in the summer and mm -hmm. you know, that moment where it's really, really hot and stuffy in there and until you roll down a window or the AC kicks in, there's nothing else other than just that oppressive, overwhelming feeling of heat. And it causes a bit of panic because mm -hmm. it's physically demanding and, and emotionally too, you're, you're maybe for that moment, like you're dysregulated until the windows down until you get air. It feels like that. If I have a sound or a, a light or a sensation that is to me, um, big <laughs> spotlighted until it goes away or until I can modify it. It's very, very hard to focus. Yeah. So, so as a facilitator of a meeting, if yeah. there's a siren going on outside, like some sort of emergency vehicle is passing by, maybe we just pause before yeah. like yeah. moving on. It takes seconds probably. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, we don't know everybody's, you know, we don't know everybody's trauma points. We don't know everybody's, you know, sensitivities. So if there is a general awareness, or if you see somebody in the room who's coming in and they're, you know, they're wearing a hoodie or headphones or they have a fidget toy or they're pulling on something like let them because that's a way for them to feel safe in their body and, and regulate. So if so like I hopefully you can't hear but downstairs my dog is barking. It's it's half of where my brain is. So I picked this up without you knowing and I'm pulling on it. The dog is still barking and I could still hear it and I'm talking about it now but now I'm regulating mm -hmm. and and something in my body, it's almost like I'm releasing the anxiety and stress of the dog working and you hearing it potentially or your listeners hearing it. And that's helping me. So if somebody's, you know, doodling during a meeting or um, if somebody's twisting their hair or whatever, wringing their hands, that all might be a sign of stimming, which is emotional regulation and releasing stress or anxiety from somebody's body, but also mind. And so yeah. I mean, I tell people who are like, if I'm clicking a plan, click, 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 that's going to be aggravating for everyone in the room. So I try to encourage people to, to choose stimming activities that are not disruptive to everybody, but not to hold yourself in and mask up and cover up everything that you, that you need for yourself right. to stay as safe as possible. Or pretend like you're not you know, like distracted or, you know, your nervous system is taking off, you know, to just have some practices that help you regulate that. And I'm thinking on the other side too, as a, as a, a manager or a leader, like if I get a new team member or just regular check-ins with my team members, is there anything that I can do or that you need, you know, to support you? in your work, yes. in your job, in these meetings, that sort of thing. Like just having that curiosity of like, like that door is never shut. Like, oh, I, we went over this checklist when you first came on the team and we're good, right? Like every now and again, like it's just a good practice for leaders yeah. to say, what can I do to support you? What it, What is it you need to do your best work? Absolutely. I mean, asking is the number one way to, to help any employee, you know, whether how, what can we do to help you feel successful work, to thrive at work? Um, how, 
what can we do to make you more comfortable? But I also like the question, what do I not know that would help me understand you better? Mm. And, and that kind of opens up the door for a little deeper discussion. You know, uh, I, I like that question. But yeah, asking asking is beautiful and not just in the interview. I, I just had a consultation with a manager that, who has some neurodivergent people on his team and he just wanted to know how to navigate it better. And he was so confused because he gave them a DISC assessment and the DISC assessment, like many other assessments for uh, personality and different abilities, wasn't in alignment with what he was seeing. You know, that somebody somebody rated in one form, but wasn't uh, performing there. And I was explaining that, I don't know about you, but if I was taking a standardized test, I would be thinking about what my manager wanted to hear because I want the job and I want to keep the job. So sometimes we mask to to get the job. Sometimes we mask to keep the job, but that gets us into trouble if we are uh, saying our capacity is more than it is or our ability is more than it is. But often for neurodivergent people who have spent their lives being misunderstood, rejected, judged, uh, not doing well potentially in school, especially on standardized tests. That's scary and mm-hmm. it's anxiety ridden. And I don't think personally that those tests are effective for many neurodivergent people who are already in, <laughs> by definition, thinking outside of what society believes is normal, in quotes. And so we're not going to test, uh, you know. Yeah. And, and we're not going to test in our present day. Uh, it, that is in alignment with our future self. <laughs> like mm-hmm. our, our, our testing self is all, is not necessarily our self that we are going to come to work with day after day, week after week, month after month. How we'll show up. So, th- so to underscore that point, even if there is psychological safety, there likely would be this history with standardized tests and school and assessments or any any sort of that that type of activity that might create stress or need to mask um, what's going on, not because they completely don't trust you as their leader or the company, but this is just their history and how they're wired. So trusting what you're seeing on the job what they're telling you, the conversations that they're having might give you more information than a standardized test would have. Um, And I also wanted to add, one of the things that can absolutely destroy psychological safety is to ask somebody what they need Mm -hmm. to have them tell you and then to not follow up. Yes. Yes. To be vulnerable, open our hearts, trust that we're being heard that that happens to me often. And then it's not heard. And there's this performative sense of, um, yeah, absolutely. Whatever you need, or, um, we'll take care. We'll look into that. And then nothing. Now I'm being asked to be more brave, come forward again, you know, and be vulnerable again later to ask for the accommodation again, or to come with that concern, or opinion again, uh, because it was dismissed, which is a microaggression, I think, you know, it was just dismissed. Yeah. To- intentional to- or not intentional, right? Like the whole, like, Oh, I forgot. I mean, the, you know, for those of you who are listening, your leaders, you know, <laughs> like, like, yes, sometimes we forget, but then we need to communicate that and apologize and make right you know, like what, what the mistake that we made, it's, it's all part of the repair process and relationships that is so important. But, you know, when you, when you're asking somebody to get vulnerable, um, so you can create that psychological safety. The last thing you want to happen is, is to forget. Do you have a challenge to share and would be willing to share with others? There's so much that can be gained by listening to what another woman is going through and to understanding the strategy that she will implement to overcome the challenge. I've seen this in the group that is currently going through the Positive Intelligence Program. 
one woman shares a particular struggle she's having, and at least two others, if not all of the other women in the group, acknowledge they have had or currently have the same challenge. It's validating for all and beneficial to talk about the approaches that have been tried and which help the situation. For this reason, I would love to do more on-air coaching calls on this podcast. If you're a woman leader who's been promoted or taken on a new role in the last year, I invite you to apply to be on the Women Taking the Lead podcast. You will be completely anonymous, so you won't need to worry about anyone you work with listening to you talk about your challenges. You will gain insights and strategies to overcome any challenges you've been faced with at work. And the other women listening to your episode will learn from your experience and gain insights that they can use at work. You can find the link that will take you to the application in the episode description in your podcast app, or if you're listening on the Women Taking the Lead website, it will be at the bottom of the episode page. If you've been considering, I say, do it. Submit the application. You and I can chat. At the very least, you will have explored the opportunity. If somebody calls a meeting, like we need to talk today, you know, can you meet with me at three? If it is eight o'clock and somebody, my manager, supervisor says we need to meet at three, literally between 8 a.m. and three, I'm thinking I'm getting fired. I'm catastrophizing. I'm in this rejection sensitivity, which is very common, uh, especially with ADHD is in full force. I'm getting nothing done. It would be so much more effective if it was, we're going to meet about this project. Uh, You're not getting fired, uh, but we're going to talk about how, you know, such and such can be improved, whatever, but something really specific, because I will go through every single scenario of what it could be and it will all be bad. (laughs) Yeah. No ambiguity is not good, which goes to another thing I wanted to ask you about, which was like shaping our words to create that psychological safety. So being very clear and concise, this is what's happening. This is what you can expect. This is what I'm looking for from you. The more clarity, right? it's a little bit extra work on our part, but even for people who are, who are not neurodivergent, that's incredibly helpful. Right? (laughs) Yes. What do you mean? How much, when, at what date, all of that? Yes. Specifics are very helpful and idioms or sayings like throw you under the bus, uh, circle back. I, I know what they mean, but it's, it's not, as easy to understand what it is that somebody wants me to do or what it is they're actually saying mm-hmm. with an autistic mind it's very literal. And, and so if somebody uses sarcasm, I don't, I don't catch it. It doesn't translate. I don't pick up those nuances that, that other people do. And if somebody's using an idiom or a saying or an acronym, by the way, like mm-hmm. I have it, my mind is full of so many acronyms that I don't know what they mean that I'm Googling them constantly. And so if in a meeting you're using just acronym after acronym after acronym, and you're not at least once in the beginning of the meeting, reminding people what this acronym means is really hard for some brains. It's like math. It's just really hard. Or having a company index of these are the common acronyms we use in our company, what we use in our division, what we use in our department. That's even I need that. (laughs) You know, I go into different companies and they have acronyms that I I don't understand. So if I'm, you know, often if I'm going to do an engagement, one of the first things I have to find out is like, what is the, what are the acronyms? What's the common language? Like, so that, you know, when my participants or anyone I'm coaching uses these terms, I understand what what they're talking about. It's so helpful. Absolutely. And speaking of language, because we were also bringing in the LGBTQ lens to the lens of neurodivergence and uh, in terms of psychological safety, specifically with LGBTQ, it might seem obvious to many of your listeners, but using, you know, pronouns after a name, whether it's in a meeting or at a conference, uh, not necessarily saying them out loud every time you introduce yourself, although that's handy as well. If there's new people in the room, for sure, because make sure nobody gets misgendered. But as simple as putting it at the end of your email 
or um, I have it on my in my name on my Zoom meetings, or certainly if I go to a conference. If not for me, for anyone in the room who's not feeling that they could either share their gender or that they feel it would be too dangerous to do so, it opens up. It it really is so huge um, and and very inclusive to to all genders and. I think, I think it should be across the board, just used in all ways, mm-hmm. because otherwise it's best to default to they, like if you don't know default to they, and people will ha- struggle with that if they don't see it in writing sometimes. And so I, especially with the younger generations, I think this is going to become even more important as each generation is becoming more gender diverse or gender fluid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's many, many, many gender uh, pronoun options, pronoun options outside of even she and he and they, there's many others. And so in your application process, or in a form they're filling out, if you only have two options, you know, male, female, or uh, it's it, or other. <laughs> what's that? Or or other. Even other is so like, yeah. you're all in this other in yeah. the U.S. Is category. It, yeah. Is it man, woman, or alien? That's what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's a simple tool that I think is often overlooked. And in terms of language, you know, if you open your conference, ladies and gentlemen, or if you say, hey, guys, you know, some to some, it's not going to bother them at all to another person it will be it will it will not establish psychological safety they will feel unsafe bringing their full selves to that meeting or to the event because they know that they're thinking in the binary and every example on stage is going to be you know man or woman and every photograph they see will be a heteronormative person or couple and so if people don't see themselves represented, they're going to leave. <laughs> yes. yes. Which, which brings me um, to, to share a, a piece of a conversation we had previously when I was talking about with you about my audience, you know, the, the audience members that I've connected with what I know about my audience. And, you know, one thing I, I shared was like, it's majority women. I know some men listen to my podcast and you asked, do non-binary people listen to this podcast? And I said, I don't know. And what I'm very clear on is there is no invitation that, that I've extended for non-binary people to listen to this podcast. And so that, that is a task I'm, I'm putting on my to-do list now to, to add that, add that language. And it doesn't, and, and like taking a step back for those who are listening, who might be feeling like, oh my God, this feels so overwhelming. It doesn't have to be like very complicated, you know, just, just being clear this podcast is for people of all genders. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Boom. Right yep. there. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm just going to assume that there are many genders listening to, to this podcast. Uh, so when people say, I, like I've been to events, business events, more corporate events, and I'll, I'll say, I'm, I'm not sure why nobody's using pronouns after their names. So they're saying, Oh, we don't have anybody trans in our, company. I've had schools say we don't need to hang the pride flag because we don't have anybody queer in our school. And like, statistically speaking, both of those things are completely wrong. Like, no. And, and it's very unlikely that, that, that either of those statements is true, but even if you're, you're helping anybody who walks into that building or space, uh, they're themselves, you're representing their children, you're representing their friends, you're representing people that they love and care about who would very much appreciate seeing a pride flag or seeing uh, pronouns on a name tag. So I think it's not just about who's in the room. It's, yeah. it's about the people that they care about and love. And I'm, I'm sensitive to it, not only for myself, but for my for my neighbor, we, I have a pride flag out front of my home. I'm the only one on the street. And, uh, and I've heard from the children in the neighborhood who probably haven't even come out to their parents yet 
that every time they pass my house, just walk by it with their dog, they feel safer. For those few feet that they walk by my house, they feel safe. Like they could run up to my door and knock on the door if they needed something and they'd be safe. And that's not true everywhere. And in this unfortunately time that we're in, some places are quite dangerous for LGBTQ people. So if you're an organization or a leader and as simple as putting open to all genders or putting uh, pronouns after your name on an email or on a name tag or in your Zoom rooms, it goes a long way. I've even uh, heard this from the Trevor Project, who uh, is about suicidal prevention for LGBTQ youth, that using pronouns is suicide prevention, just like flat out declaration. Because if somebody doesn't feel like their identity is seen or heard or respected, you know, then how are they going to feel like they belong ever anywhere? Right. So it's really important. And the younger generations are going to demand it if they aren't already. So they are. And to expand the lens even more, it's a signal of shared values because you don't even know how many employees in your organization have relatives and friends who are neurodivergent or LGBTQ, you know, or, 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 like we, we could go on the whole list, but like sometimes it's just a signal of your people are important to us too. Absolutely. And along those lines, if you have a, a parent who's disabled, you know, having the lens of accessibility is going to be important to you. If you have a sibling who struggles with mental health, it's it's going to feel like an attack, not just to your sibling, but to you if somebody's using like crazy and schizo as just terms that they're throwing around, right? Mm-hmm. Like honoring people's experience. I, I went to an inclusivity conference the other day and they were saying, we really need to be careful also about trauma. And I know this is going to sound like to a lot of people out there, oh my goodness, there's so much to remember. But saying things like trauma triggers uh, in this age of unfortunately a lot of violence, specifically school violence, things like triggers or don't shoot the messenger are violent. And so um, it's not going to necessarily cause PTSD in somebody, but it's a really good awareness. So, and my last thing is that if you're talking about, let's say mental health or neurodivergence, and you're saying something like autism spectrum disorder or bipolar disorder, literally just drop the disorder, drop the D, drop the disorder. You could say autism, you could say bipolar, you don't need to add disorder. It's not Mm -hmm. necessary. It's pathologizing, it's stigmatizing. I know it's the way it's written some in the DSM. In a manual, right? In the manual. (laughs) But that's not the language of inclusivity, inclusive uh, language within the neurodivergent community at all. Just like in the disability community, rather than saying hidden or invisible disabilities, that's not said anymore. It's non-apparent because one, they're, they already feel invisible and they're not hiding it. It's non-apparent. It might someday become apparent. It might be apparent to some people, but it's certainly not invisible and it's certainly not hidden. And so that little tweak in language is empowering to the people who feel like people are respecting that. And it, it's, it's just, uh, well, frankly, it's just that we need to learn the new language as it, as it comes, because that will retain, hire, retain, support. I mean, all of it. You're, you're just going to lose people if you don't respect the language um, around their identity. Right. And it, it can be difficult. I do want to acknowledge that it's hard because for years now, you, you said something, Pasha, just had my mind explode because this is something I have been working on for years is removing violent language from my vocabulary. And in our culture, that is so hard. And it's so hard in business when you think about targets, right? When you think I used the expression last week, didn't even mean to came out of my mouth, but it was really like, I was trying to express this will be done and ready to go. And I said, locked and loaded. Right. And we, we talk about crushing our goals and killing it. And like, there is so like, I, 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 I'm planting a seed for everybody. And I'm, I, I, I want to say I'm, I want to apologize, but I really don't. I'm planting a seed because you are suddenly going to become aware of how much language is all around us and comes out of our own mouths. That is very violent. 
and is not inclusive. Like we don't realize, like we may not be like causing people to run from the room, but people, you know, I know I do too. When people use that language, it's like, kind of like, oh, okay. Like that's very, it's a military term or it's about hunting and killing something. And, you know, and, and we use these, these terms to talk about people and projects and like, even like good things like ending cancer, we use very violent language towards it. But anyway, but, so where I want to go now, Pasha, cause we could talk forever is so for those who are listening, how do they continue their own development to sharpen their lens for inclusion and intersectionality? Because this is like a jumping off point, but we want to keep this work going. Yeah. Uh, Certainly listening to and absorbing content from people in the, in the field of disability inclusion, neurodiversity, affirming, uh, and, and folks who are showing it in consist with consistency, you know, not, not just, not just performatively. So taking in content, there's a, there's some excellent, uh, I go on LinkedIn when I want to learn and I'm, and I very specifically and mindfully seek out people with the most intersecting marginalized identities because they're the ones who will fully uh, understand, you know, the direction we need to go. And so Mm -hmm. I would suggest that Um, I offer and many people do consultations and trainings in, uh, you know, virtual and live going to businesses and talking to them about whether it's inclusive language or how to manage a neurodivergent team or intergenerational leadership. I think that was my next question for you, Pasha was like, what are some of the presentations and trainings that you do for organizations? Cause I know organizations are hungry for this to have their leaders and their employees get trained on how to create these safe environments. Yeah. I, through consultation and trainings and and then keynotes, what I do is I will either talk about intergenerational leadership, like this is coming. This is these are the needs of of Gen Z and Gen Alpha, and by the way, it includes a lot about neurodivergence and gender fluidity, and a lot of the things we already talked about and disability inclusion. So all those things are noted, and uh, and then I also talk about neurodiversity affirming practices which is a lot about assuming competency and letting go of, of stigma and allowing for autonomy, um, talking to people about the really the benefits of remote work and why for some people it's the only way they can work from a sensory perspective, but also a disability perspective. Uh, there's there's so much I could, I'll, I'll table that, but like remote and hybrid work, I think is really important when you're uh, trying to support your neurodivergent and or uh, disabled employees. And uh, and then I'll talk about neuroqueering, which is not just the intersection of neurodiversity and queerness, but this idea that we need to lead differently. We need to manage differently. differently. We need to start to challenge the status quo of the way things used to be done and the way things are done now to, to really a- accommodate for a changing workforce. And so that that could look like challenging some norms, challenging our language like we were doing in this very episode, uh starting to question things like why do we do it this way? Just mm-hmm. like it almost almost around everything we do at work. Why do we do it this way? Why do we say it this way? And and that really brings some nice humility and curiosity and uh, empathy to leadership that I really appreciate. Uh, so I would say those are the, those are the top uh, topics that I, that I speak on and and train on. And then of course, depending on who I'm speaking to customize it and individualize it for, for either their team or the managers or the ERGs. I talk to a lot of ERGs, uh, LGBTQ or neurodiversity or disability. And sometimes a lot of uh, organizations are starting to do uh, intersectional ERGs, which I think makes a lot of sense where there'd be like a neurodivergent and LGBTQ combined ERG that, that helps people feel seen more. Absolutely. Because as human beings, we are intersectional right? We are not just one thing. So it makes sense for all these ERGs, if not like 
combining at least to be collaborating together to create programs and discussion groups and what absolutely and then and then I guess the the final thing I would say is you know all of this includes mental health struggles like anything in the DSM and any mental health struggle is considered a neurodivergence and also that that requires an a certain amount of support you know does does your company allow for mental health days does your does your company um, offer insurance that includes therapy, you know, or, or medications or, you know, so I just think it's really important, especially now there's a, obviously the world has gone through a heck of a lot over the last few years. And there's a lot of collective trauma and a lot of mental health struggles out there, adults and youth. And I think we need to be aware of, of that, especially now. And where to get help, which then leads me to ask you, Pasha, where can people find you and connect with you so they can have conversations about potentially bringing you in to help them in their organizations as well? Great. Well, I'm the CEO of NeuroBelonging, and my website is neurobelonging.org. I'm all over LinkedIn and and many social media channels, but LinkedIn's my favorite. Uh, That's under my name, Pasha Marlowe. Uh, those are the best ways to find me. You can also email me Pasha at PashaMarlow.com. Well, Pasha, thank you so much for taking the time to inspire and enlighten us. We are all better for having met you. Thank you so much for having me, Jody, And thank you everyone listening. I can't wait to meet you and talk to you further. Thank you so much for listening to women taking the lead. If you are not yet subscribed to the podcast, hit the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you know anyone who can benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Most new discoveries come from our friends, family, and colleagues. And as always, I hope this was of value to you and here's to your success.